Hi, I'm Rob Langton from Development Ready. Our interview series delves into the lives of Australia's most respected property thought leaders and decision makers and uncovers what makes them tick. This is the interview. This afternoon we have the pleasure of having with us Joseph Gersh AM, Executive Chairman of Gersh Investment Partners. Gersh Investment Partners is a specialist real estate investment firm focused specifically on property finance, property development and principal real estate transactions. Joe, you're a well-regarded businessman, lawyer and strategic advisor across the public and private sectors and your career has included directorships at the Reserve Bank of Australia Payments Board, Federal Airports Corporation and Australia Council for the Arts. In 2018, you are also appointed to the board of the ABC by the Turnbull Government. Thanks for your time this afternoon. There's a, uh, a lot to discuss today. I want to start with your upbringing. You grew up in Melbourne and studied at the University of Melbourne, completing your studies in 1979, and you did a Bachelor of Commerce and a Bachelor of Law degree. Tell me about your experience at the University of Melbourne. Well, I had great experience at uh, Melbourne University. Um, as I look back on it, um, there were two, two, two strong memories. One was that um, I spent um, a lot more time out of the classroom than I did in the classroom itself. I was very involved in student affairs, particularly um, the Australian Union of Jewish Students, which at the time was um, engaged in a, in, in a um, battle with the Australian Union of Students, which had passed some um, very odd, um, for the times, anti-Israel resolutions, and we took it upon ourselves to have those defeated. So at the, at, at the time, this was um, in, enormously kind of emotionally explosive for us as, as young people on campus. It was really the left um, on campus looking for an issue after the Vietnam War was over, because Gough Whitlam had uh, withdrawn Australian troops in 1972. This was around 1975. So I spent a good deal of my time outside of the classroom. In the classroom, we were really very priv privileged at the Melbourne University Law School at the time to have had some of the really great names of the law as our teachers. Many of them wouldn't be household names, but they are in the law. have gone on to, to greatness. For example, my um, lecture in evidence law was Mark Weinberg. Mark Weinberg brought down the decisive decision on Cardinal George Pell. And if he'd had him as a lecturer in evidence, you'd have known that he was a stickler for the rules of evidence. So I predicted in advance that um, unless the case could be proved um, beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, it wouldn't pass muster with him, and it didn't. So that was, that was, <laughs> that was an interesting insight. But again, some of the, the leaders of the bar today uh, judges, famous names of the famous textbooks were our lecturers at the time, so I had a wonderful experience at Melbourne University. And post your university studies, you joined revered Melbourne law firm Arnold Block Liebler and were appointed partner and later chairman of the management committee from the period 1982 up until 1999. Tell me about your 17-year career, uh, 17 year career at ABL. Strange though it may seem, when I joined ABL um, as an article clerk, it was a four-partner firm. It had a big reputation even then, but it was actually not, not that large a firm. And the senior and founding partner, Arnold Block, was in the process of retiring just as I finished my article year. So I was given a wonderful opportunity, which was to join the partnership in 1982. I'd only been with the firm for my article's year and a year as an associate. But not only that, but to recruit a number of the, of the partners that followed me into the firm 
ABL's current managing partner, Henry Lanza, it's a star litigator, Leon Zwire. These were all university friends of mine um, who um, we recruited to the firm. Um, Mark Liebler gave me and us a great deal of latitude to do it. And I think the rest is history. Now, Arnold Block Liebler is one of the most established and, and well-regarded law firms here in Australia, owing to the profile of people that work for the company and also that the company has worked with. What was it like working with Mark Liebler and what did you learn from your time at ABL? Two or three things that I enjoyed. First of all, I enjoyed the um, collegiate but yet competitive attitude of the partners, many of whom were friends. So you, um, you, you and uh, Mark's um, great ability was to bring out the best in people. He's was and probably still is the smartest guy in the room, but our job was to prove that we were up to the task. And um, I think we were, I think we were. But the, the thing about uh, Mark for people who don't know him and who might think that he's intimidating is that he was actually a very, very loyal and supportive senior partner. And to this day, even though it's 20 years since I left the firm, um, I still feel if I had a problem that I couldn't solve, you could turn to him and he'd have your back. So he, for men, he created that kind of an atmosphere within the firm that uh, the young partners, and they're now, of course, um, seasoned and mature partners, felt very much supported. But it is, it is a very competitive, intellectually demanding, um, um, place within and the clients expect the best as well. They're prepared to, they, they hire the best, they want the best and uh, they won't take no for an answer and they won't wait till tomorrow for it either. So it does create um, efficiency, um, it does create, um, uh, stimulate uh, very careful uh, thought but also instinctive and, and, and speedy responses. In July of 2000, you established Gersh Investment Partners. What was the rationale behind switching from the law to commerce? And what was the original investment mandate or philosophy that you pursued? Well, it's an interesting question that, that, that you ask. A lot of what we, we do at Gersh Investment Partners, um, if we were, say, in the United States, you wouldn't leave the law to do because um, in the United States, it's not uncommon for lawyers to participate with uh, their clients in transactions nor is it um, unusual for lawyers to go in and out of government service or even get engaged in uh, government relations or possibly even lobbying. A lot of the things that we, uh, that we find ourselves doing, advocacy, um, government boards, government relations, and certainly participation with our clients, are done in law firms. It's not usually done in Australia. It's more of the British tradition where lawyers are paid to stand back from transactions. So I wanted to be my client's investment partner. Gersh was the name most available to me cheaply. Um, so, so we called Gersh Investment Partners uh, because we wanted to be investment partners with our clients. And the idea was to, whether we were the advisor or whether we were um, a financial participant, um, to share with our clients in, um, in the opportunities that we, that we sourced or that we were asked to advise on and to participate financially in them. And where did your interest in, in real estate or the real estate sector uh, derive from in, in that client case? was client driven at ABL actually. It was just that many of the clients were in real estate or were in other businesses but invested in real estate. And I fell naturally, perhaps 
because of some you know sin committed in a former life or some other reason in with many of our property developer clients so that the interest kind of grew organically as as the clients expanded their portfolios were engaged in development both here and actually overseas um, so I think all of our law partners then uh, grew together with their clients and in many ways were led by the areas in which their clients um, found themselves. It's different today where you choose a specialty and, and pursue it and look for clients in that specialty. Uh, back then, I think, it was more that you followed your clients where they went. I love real estate. I, I think I have a natural affinity to it, but I could have ended up in, in other fields of, of endeavour had my clients ended up in other fields of endeavour. And in fact, I found myself spending quite some time in when I was practising law in private mergers and acquisitions, which um, hasn't been the focus of this business. And so we're just ticked over over 20 years ago that you started the business. How have you managed to evolve it over those past 20 years or so? Well, it's been through a number of iterations, um, including the, the most recent, but one of the things that have transformed the business is that when we began, the client base was mostly um, Australian based really Melbourne-based people, though people that I already knew or relationships that I already had, including with, with counterparties in Sydney, we now represent um, a, a very considerable part of our book are overseas clients, the largest of whom um, Superly is a Thai real estate company that's had a mandate with us for seven years to look for equity opportunities and um, have invested over $200 million worth of equity thus far, which is a lot of equity. It's not a lot of money in the debt space, but it is actually quite a lot of money in the equity space. So take us through how the business has grown over that, that time. I mean, the first couple of years presumably was uh, clients that you'd brought over from ABL. What about today? Who's the, the client list and, and who's the investor list? The client, well, some of the, um, the families that invested with us from ABL and ABL days are still with us. Generally speaking, they actually don't actually like us talking about who our investor list is. If it's, if it's local, you'd know the names. Um, and they don't generally invest with us exclusively, but they do invest with us. And um, we also have some, um, some limited advisory gigs for people who actually don't need who neither need our investment nor want to invest with us, but do, do need advice, and that's conducted discreetly. It's not. Um, I don't give legal. I don't give legal advice. Bad mistake to try to give legal advice um, once you've left the law because you're out of touch very quickly. So you know that you know how to be an intelligent consumer of law, but you don't give legal advice once you're not practicing. So the advice is commercial advice, just the experience of finance and the risks, joint ventures and the risks. Um, there's nothing new that's been invented in. Um, in real estate, it goes in it goes in waves and patterns. But there's been there's nothing new. And experience tells, and sometimes people just want to tap into that experience, a sounding board. And how have you found Melbourne change over the past 20 years? Do you see more opportunity today than you did back in July of 2000? I'll tell you how I've described Melbourne. The I mentioned our Thai client, the former managing director of Superly. Um, when he retired became the chair of, I think it's called the National Housing Association of Thailand, which is their UDIA equivalent or something like that. Um, and he brought a group of 20 of his peers to Australia for a study trip. 
you know, competitors, even competitors of, the, of that business, highly placed people in, in government and, and finance. And we hosted a dinner for them when they were here in Melbourne. And I tried to describe to them uh, the way that Melbourne sees itself and the way that it really is. So we see Melbourne, if you've grown up in Melbourne, I grew up in East Bentley, moved to Caulfield, lived in Melbourne all of my life. My parents were originally from Poland. My, my mum came from a um, small town in, in Poland uh, with the name of Turek, T-U-R-E-K. So if I write the book you mentioned, my biography, I was going to call it from Turek to Turek in one generation. So the Melbourne that I grew up with in my, in my imagination was the leafy green suburbs, the business my father was a manufacturer, a knitwear manufacturer, so you see Melbourne as a, as a manufacturing city and basically a city that was even then multicultural, but the multicultural element was um, the Anglo-Australians, um, the post-war immigrants, the Jewish community, Greeks, Italians, Turks. That's not Melbourne today. And as I explained to our Thai friends, first of all, Melbourne is not a city of leafy green suburbs anymore. There are leafy green suburbs, but we're a city of five, five and a half million that will outstrip Sydney, um, which will be a city of eight million people before too long. So we're a big city, even by international standards. Our core business is not manufacturing. It's services, it's education, it's health. We're a Eurasian city. And there are very significant communities um, from all throughout Southeast Asia. So we're a different city in reality than, than we are in our own minds. And the challenge is to adapt to that. Um, and particularly if you're in the housing business, you need to recognise that, of course, because that is actually the future of the whole residential business in Melbourne, which is by far the predominant part of the Gersh Investment Partners portfolio. So I'm attuned to it from both a, a cultural perspective, but also a business perspective. And walk us through some of the projects you've either invested in over that time or that you've completed as a developer yourself. We have participated as principals in, in development, but um, this is a client-led business, so we, we haven't been um, principals um, in our own right, develop, uh, as developers ourselves, in, in any of the projects, we've always been partners. We've always been partners. I have, in my own right, done some development over the years, but that was actually um, before I set, set up Gersh Investment Partners. The business that, and, and again, it's, it, it's evolved, but for example, when we opened the business 20 years ago, one of the deals that I, that I um, started the business with was with my very good friend and long-term client, Stuart Barron and, and the Barron family. They were then developing what became the Southern Cross Complex and brought in um, Babcock and Brown at the time and Multiplex. So that was a project that we spent, you know, the first year or two of this business heavily engaged in. We've moved on from, from there considerably now and most of our book these days is, is residential development. So that, um, for example, um, our Thai clients, um, under our advice, have developed the Balmoral Key um, development down in Geelong. We're partners with ICD at, um, at Finesford um, in, in that same area. We've had deals with um, um, Pete Limited, with the Satley Group, and most recently, um, of course, um, Superli has entered into a joint venture arrangement with Stockland um, for a development known as Catalia, which has just, just been released to the market in the Donnybrook area. Um, that's a very strategic um, 
um, move for, for Superlay because they being either number one or number two listed real estate residential development company in Thailand are very keen to be partners with um, a company like Stockland who they regard as a, as a peer um, and would like to be doing a number of joint ventures and Stockland have said quite openly so would they so that's a very important partnering uh, relationship following on to the success that Superlize had in various developments with, um, with a number of credentialed um, Australian parties who I've mentioned. And tell us about the business as it is today. There's eight of you that work full-time in Gersh Investment Partners. What are, what are some of the roles and positions that, uh, that your staff have? Well, the two key executives here each have a, a Tom Rowe, who is our Chief Investment Officer, and his, his expertise, his, he has two areas of expertise. One is he's the great advocate for Geelong because he lives at Barwon Heads and is involved in, engaged in local affairs. Um, and his, he's had experience in a number of sectors in real estate, including offices, and, and, but um, uh, in, in the configuration here at Gersh, he takes care of residential subdivisions principally and has very deep expertise and an involvement with the UDA in that area and he represents Superlie um, in all of the joint venture meetings um, with, their, with their Australian joint venture partners. So that's his area. Theo Exalis, who's ex-Qualitas, um, um, actually, and various other places. Theo heads up um, the work that we do in built form and has quite a deep expertise. In fact, we have a development management role in some of the projects where there isn't an incumbent uh, development manager. And he also has some deep expertise in debt, and we have had some debt mandates over time. Um, that's less of a focus in our business than, than equity, uh, and, and they are different skill sets. It's interesting because some of the, um, the debt parties are now moving into equity, and some have the skill sets and will be very successful, but it has been a and it has, has been a problem for some in the past. So watch it with interest. I was going to ask you about that. So the projects that you do invest in, in what sort of capacity do you invest? Is it in an equity capacity? Do you provide debt? Uh, is we, it we, finance? We, well, we're only ever... Um, the, fir the first principle is you have to know who your client is. So if, are we representing the developer or are we representing the money? because you can't represent both. Generally speaking, we're representing the money, but not exclusively. We do, we have from time to time represented the developer. Then the next question you need to ask is, on what basis are you investing? Because equity looks at a deal in one way and debt looks at a deal in a slightly different way. You're looking at the deal from a different end of the telescope. In debt, the principal concern is, am I going to be, is my interest going to be covered? And am I going to be repaid? Is there enough left? to make sure I get paid. Equity is asking exactly the opposite question. When you've satisfied your, um, your debt party, is there actually something at the pointy end left for you? And then of course, mezzanine's in the middle. We generally speaking, um, when we're acting for the money, we prefer to invest um, equity and not to be involved in the debt side, except as an advisor, so that we will go to, to the debt market and find for them the most attractive um, uh, finance package, assuming they need it, and often they don't. So the um, counterparties that I've mentioned, Stockland, Pete, Satterley, have got their own very deep debt relationships and don't need us for that. And so we only provide that service where it's required. If we're involved 
strictly in debt, then we, generally speaking, don't participate in equity. Now, one of your recent projects is a project called Brunswick Yard, which was announced recently. Tell us about that opportunity. How did it come about and in what capacity uh, are you involved? It's going to sound like I'm contradicting myself, but in fact, in that particular um, project, we are a direct um, equity um, participant with our, with our client, Superli. It came to us through an introduction, um, a builder client uh, of ours with whom we, we have a very good relationship and who may well end up being the builder for the project. But um, um, in that particular instance, um, the land was, was available to be bought at what we thought then was a, um, a compelling price um, and time has proved to be right. We just like the area, just we like the vibe, we like the, um, the price at which we're able to put these apartments on the market. Uh, we very much like the design which, which we commissioned through car. We, um, we like the space, it's for owner occupiers or local investors. It's not geared to the overseas market at all, which is fortunate because right now I'm not sure there is um, an overseas market, although it will be back. It will, it, it will clearly be back. We particularly like the price point. We like the fact that, you know, you can get a, and we also, sorry, before we get to price point, we also like the fact that the apartments are slightly bigger than the usual and, and again, Time's proven that to be the right concept because with people locked down for three months, they've suddenly realised that space is at a premium. And um, it's exactly, so for a number of reasons, um, we, we, we like the project. One of the other reasons, apart from the fact that, uh, and we're involved in the development management there in a serious way, there, there are a number of reasons for doing it. Um, I won't, you know, obviously I won't discount the fact that we expect to make money by doing it but also sharpens our skills. Um, so, you know, occasionally you don't want to be the advisor and having actually never done it yourself. Um, and, you know, so we, we have always participated in, in a few of the deals that we're involved in uh, within our balance sheet capacities, but also our risk appetite. I want to uh, ask you, Joe, about Australia from an international standpoint. What makes Australia an attractive destination for investment from a global perspective? And do you think the effects of COVID-19 will have a positive or negative impact on, on that? Well, seeing that I'm spending um, a good deal of my time now in one way or another representing or in contact with overseas investors, I've, I think I've got a feel for what it is that makes Australia um, attractive to our Thai clients or even to the Singaporean um, group ARA that's involved with um, Cromwell, which is a company I've re recently appointed the board of. Our Thai clients um, like Australia for a number of reasons. Um, they, they very much appreciate um, transparency, predictability and um, stability. Unlike, um, say, Chinese investors, um, Thai people generally feel very positively about their country so they're not this is not flight capital they're not they're not planning an exit they just want to diversify as it happens um, the son of the chair of um, Superlight um, um, studied at Melbourne University so the family knew Melbourne well but they didn't have a contact in Melbourne a, a, um, a former colleague of, of mine who moved to Bangkok introduced us and once they could make a good connection here uh, we've had in, an enduring relationship, but uh, they love the fact that um, we have a, a, a predictable, stable, um, transparent system. Occasionally, 
we um, embarrass ourselves with um, with stories about things that are not entirely transparent. Um, you know, they're just on the eve of um, um, opening Balmoral Quay, which was the development on the water in Geelong. The Geelong Council was sacked, so the mayor who was going to do the <laughs> the ribbon cutting was <laughs> was was not in office. So um, Richard Miles, who's a local uh, Labor member, actually did the opening for us, which was very kind of him. So we're not perfect in terms of transparency, but um, and stability and predictability. But um, I, I think we rate highly. The same with the Singaporeans. Are oh, the Singaporeans actually come from a um, stable, you know, transparent and and predictable? They just they just they just like the Australian growth story, um, and um, they believe. Uh, they, they believe in Australia, so the, it's the similarity of systems, actually, not the difference of systems, that, that attract the, the Singaporeans. Uh, Australia's going to do remarkably well post-COVID because we've done remarkably well. Um, you know, we won't go into the politics of the lockdown in Victoria and everybody had their opinion as they're entitled to. Um, but anyway, fact is, you know, whether we like the process or not, we're now in a, you know, zero or close to zero um, caseload here, New South Wales, Queensland. So Australia will emerge from this with a with a vaccine promised to us by um, Dr. Fauci by the end of the year in a seminar he gave to Melbourne University last week. So we'll take him at his word. Uh, sometime by the middle of next year, that vaccine hopefully will have been distributed. That's how our budget's built. Um, so the government believes it as well. By the end of the year, next year, business, you know, returning to uh, to something like normal, Australia remains highly desirable, um, and we need population. Though so the one um, big looming threat in our business, in the residential development business, no matter how much stimulus the federal government has given us, and that stimulus was very welcome and has been very effective, and the Victorian government have said they're going to bring a stimulus or further stimulus in in the budget towards the end of the month. I hope they do. If they do, it will hopefully be effective. But none of that will replace population growth. So we do need to get back to that. Obviously, it's not going to happen this year. It may not happen until some point next year. They may work out some arrangements for students, for immigrants, but that's the biggest looming threat to, to the business that we're in. Otherwise, actually, we're in we're in good shape, historically low interest rates. Hopefully unemployment will come down. Um, affordability is a worry, it is a real worry. Um, nonetheless, um, it, it's, it's fundamentally a strong business and people from overseas believe in it. A city that's um, expecting to grow the way that Melbourne was on trajectory to grow is a worthwhile city to invest in because there will always be opportunity and demand. And for a long time, um, the supply wasn't meeting the demand. Um, it's now been um, it's now been proven that with a bit of stimulus um, we can revive that sector. Obviously, there is a limit, and the limit will come if there are no new people um, in Victoria or in Australia. But there will be. In 2018, you launched your own uh, Gersh Finance Fund, which was a $500 million fully under, underwritten real estate fund. What uh, asset classes or, or segments have you invested in uh, and are there any segments that you're avoiding? Well, we, um, we called it a fund, but in fact it was a mandate and yes, it was fully, it was, it was, was fully underwritten and we've been successful in placing some, but by certainly by no means all in what's a very, very competitive space. 
Um, and we were agnostic as to real estate sector, although the deals that we, we have done um, have been closer to, to the areas that we know best uh, rather than you know, outside of that field. So um, most of the work we've done has been in residential um, real estate built form and subdivisions. And have you found demand from clients for the Gersh Finance Fund? Um, we found um, we found the space to be very competitive, and um, so um, there is the general trend is that um, things are getting to be very difficult in terms of borrowing from the banks. The banks are very risk averse in the wholesale market. Um, thankfully, they seem to be back. Um, in lending to housing because nobody can replace the banks in terms of you know mum and dad house lending even though there are competitors and always will be but without bank support that sector can't can't manage in terms of the development funding um, the banks have retreated or become extremely conservative and generally speaking um, there's been demand um, considerable demand um, for um, borrowing on that basis and obviously if money's earning, you know, a fraction of a percent in the bank, there's also been a demand for investors to invest in that sector, but it's become very competitive. And we have been able to land some deals, but by no means have we filled um, even that mandate. So we're, we're wary of, of the debt space because of its competitiveness, but, um, and often, of course, the terms of any mandate that we've got may not be the most competitive. So we find ourselves in a position, as I mentioned before, where it's our role to find the most competitive funding and it may not be ourselves. What do you think are the, the biggest opportunities and what do you think are the biggest challenges for property developers in this current market? In our sector of the market, as I mentioned before, is population growth. Um, we've got um, three things drive residential real estate. Um, population, unemployment, interest rates. Interest rates are historic low and will stay there. Um, unemployment, um, I hope, has peaked um, and it may be another six or 12 months. Obviously, nobody's gonna buy a house if they don't think they've got a job. Uh, population is, is, is the key challenge there. I believe the government is committed to, um, to seeing population growth, but it has to happen reasonably quickly. Apart from anything else, we've got incredible infrastructure needs and no um, a shortage of skilled people to do it. So this is, this is craziness. I mean, we actually need the people to do the things that we need to do to get ourselves out of recession. So that's the challenge. Uh, the, biggest, um, the biggest opportunity here is some of the um, new, new ways of thinking. So um, build to rent, because housing affordability lead inevitably to people having to be long-term renters and we need to develop a market for that. Some things related to health, bioscience, areas of that kind, and you've spoken to the people talking about Medi hotels, that whole science, medicine, things related to um, logistics and data, um, which is an area actually that um, um, Cromwell, which I'm now on the board of, have, have looked at. But again, they're all specialist areas. There's logistics, data, uh, build to rent um, and then and I don't have the answers here but then think through the future of retail um, because um, there are some elements of retail that probably uh, won't recover or are, are broken for all time some elements of course will succeed 
Um, so somebody is going to come up with some innovative ideas and already coming up with innovative ideas in retail, not my field of expertise. You mentioned Cromwell there, I can't uh, help but pass up the opportunity to ask you about it. It's been a pretty significant fistfight between Cromwell and ARA for, for several years now. You've been appointed to the board. Tell me about what skills or capabilities you bring to the board and, and how big the challenge is between the two companies to patch up relations. I was only involved in the um, in the, the final round of what you called the punch up. Um, I was. Um, asked, uh, nominated by ARA to, uh, to that board and thankfully um, I was elected um, with the support of, of ARA obviously but also um, on the recommendation of some of the proxy advisors who recognised that as a 30% shareholder ARA was within rights to have a couple of seats on the board. We've only had one board meeting so it's early days and there's an AGM yet to come. Well I, I in terms of skills it's interesting that um, we're going to end the interview where um, where we started because one of the reasons that the board of Cromwell uh, recommended against um, against me as a director was that they said that I was um, because of my association with with ABL and the under the stock exchange rules if you've been within the last three years either an employee or associated with an advisor to the company actually then um, you're not considered to be independent so but in the case of Cromwell they said even 20 years ago, um, I'm forever stamped with, you know, being an ex-ABL partner, which means I'm not independent uh, of their board. I don't know whether that's a compliment or an insult, but it, uh, it certainly got some of, the, um, some of the shareholders to vote against me. The skills that, um, that I bring to bear is, I think I know the, the subject matter of that company, real estate, very well, understand the risks and the threats and the issues hopefully had a lot of experience in, in dispute resolution over the years, not intentionally, but the property people are notoriously fractious and the it's easy to fight. What What's hard to do is to find a way through that doesn't involve a fight and in fact um, I've done that for clients many times where they've asked me just to be their representative to bring you know, to bring a little bit of just clear thinking and pragmatism to, to the table. Whether I can be the peacemaker here, this I don't know. Um, I have a lot of, um, a lot of respect for, for Gary Weiss, who, you know, they rejected as a director for no really good reason um, a couple of times. And there are some capable people within. So I, I think it will resolve itself. Um, exactly how, I, I don't fully know. And, and if I did, I probably couldn't tell you. So. <laughs> three, <laughs> three quick uh, final ones to finish. You're heavily involved in philanthropic endeavours. Tell us about why you get so involved, how much it, uh, what it means to you to be involved in, in well, those causes. Um, you know, um, I say this, you know, against my own day job, but property is is, is a long, slow business. Um, it's in residential subdivisions. It's literally watching grass grow. So, so um, you you need to be patient. Um, can be very rewarding and can be very challenging. Um, fortunately, I've always had interests outside of the law or outside of the business, um, including a time on um, one of the boards of the Reserve Bank, chair of the government's terrorism reinsurer. I was the, the deputy chair of the Australia Council. Um, currently I'm on the board of the ABC, um, which is fascinating, which is fascinating. There's almost no facet of Australian life that the ABC is not involved in. 
uh, everyone's got an opinion. So you know, the minute you announce at a dinner party you're on the board of the ABC, that's the end of the evening. Everybody knows better than the board how to... <laughs> Tell me about how, how that appointment came about though. You were appointed as a non-executive director by the Turnbull government. How did that opportunity... Uh, well, I was, I was, well, I, I don't, I, I, I'm fairly well known to, um, to the then Minister of Communications, Mitch Fifield, but there's actually a nomination process. And apparently I was, um, so you need to apply, and I was apparently shortlisted, and the government then chooses, but it's always controversial. Everything about the ABC is controversial, which makes it fun. Um, and as it happened, I joined the board um, um, two or three months before there was a major boardroom upheaval, um, as a consequence of which the managing director and then the chair both left. So I was certainly had a baptism of fire at the ABC. So, you know, situation, uh, you know, going to a board meeting that, that that's normal was out was unusual. Then, of course, we've had COVID, so we've had to do the whole thing on uh, on Zoom and on Teams. So we haven't physically seen each other. Um, for a while and, and two of my board colleagues finished their terms last meeting so there's a, a couple of new appointments imminent. So things are always changing at the ABC. Um, it's had to deal with um, uh, the bushfire season, it's had to deal with um, um, changes to its budget. We, there's a dispute as to whether there were cuts. Um, uh, effectively um, there have been um, uh, and um, of course, the ABC's had to deal with both reporting COVID and actually running the place uh, remotely through COVID. So it's it's full of excitement. Um, it, it, it's full of excitement and um, yeah, something to get the blood going the first thing in the morning. <laughs> if you're if you're in lockdown and you've had your first coffee and your first meeting's not till ten, uh, you pick up the press clippings on the ABC and within within a short time, <laughs> the blood's boiling and the mind's going and you're thinking about you know snappy answers to stupid questions. So it's um it's good fun. It's one good fun. final one. You've got a uh, a project. Uh, I should say you've got a, a vineyard, Merrick's Grove Vineyard, down on the peninsula. Is that a passion project or is it something that you that you sort of uh, well, it, it has to be a passion project. If you mean, is it a money-making project? Um, no, we're, we've um, got 80 acres under vine, and uh, Woodmarsh, of fantastic architects, designed a, a, a wonderful home, which um, which has won many architectural prizes for us. Um, the vineyard is um, run um, in part um, by Red Hill Estate, who source um, their, their Pinot and Chardonnay from, from that vineyard and also a boutique winery called Garagiste run by a, a winemaker Barnaby Flanders who's, who's also done very well so we drink a lot of what's grown on, on the property um, so yeah it's, it's, it's a passion um, uh, you know, it's again if um, I'm, not, I'm not a great sports fan so basically if I don't want to talk about the ABC talk about wine and everybody's interested <laughs> Everybody's interested, you know. <laughs> well, uh, Joseph Gersh, I am a, an absolute pleasure having you on this afternoon. Thanks so much for your time.